the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome. Great to have you with us for this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 11th of October. As we head into today's program, we've got a real treat for you. Earlier today, we had the 25th Annual KFAX Pastors Appreciation Luncheon held at the Marriott Hotel in Fremont. And our special keynote speaker is no doubt you've been hearing here on the station for the last several weeks, Pastor Philip DeCourcy from Know the Truth, heard Monday through Friday at 12.30 p.m. So we've had an opportunity to record his message. And i got to tell you, while it's designed for pastors, I think every one of us can receive some tremendous encouragement from the words that Philip DeCourcy shared with the audience today at the Marriott Hotel. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Regional Vice President of Salem Media and the General Manager of our sister station in Los Angeles, KKLA. Here's Terry Fay. Today's speaker, Philip DeCourcy, hails from Belfast, Northern Ireland. At 16, he came to Christ. A few years later, in the midst of civil unrest in his country, he served as a part-time reserve police officer. Although some of his comrades were injured or even killed during the six-year period, Philip was unharmed. And to this day, he believes that God had protected him and used this faith-building season to prepare him for pastoral ministry. He shepherded a congregation for six years in the suburb of Belfast. But in the early 1990s, he felt God calling him to come here to the States. And he served in churches in Ohio as well as Southern California. Today, he pastors Kindred Community Church in Anaheim Hills. In 2010, he began his daily program, Know the Truth, on three radio stations. Today, it can be heard on 625 stations, including KFAX, which you can hear at 12.30 p.m., Monday through Friday. Or for you early risers, maybe you caught him this morning at 4.30 a.m., what I appreciate most is the way he weaves in quotes from the great teachers of times past. I know you'll be inspired by today's message. Would you welcome Pastor Philip DeCourcy? Good afternoon. It's a joy to be in the Bay Area with you at KFAX. Certainly appreciate the partnership we have with Mike and the team. And as you were listening, I just want to add my amen. If, if God's stirring you up to get into radio, do it. If God gives you the opportunity and the resources, pursue that. Certainly in our church in Anaheim Hills, we have seen uh, over 50% of visitors come through the radio, and uh, a third of our new members uh, came through the radio. And so it's certainly been a church building a platform for us, and we're delighted uh, to be partners with the Salem Media Group in this great pursuit. The Bible says, God gave the word, and great was the company that published it, proclaimed it, and it's a joy uh, to pursue that. I also want to 
give a shout out to KFAX, 25 years of yeah, uh, faithful ministry. Uh, to pastors and wives, um, George Whitfield, the great New England evangelist, said that you can get tired in the ministry, but never off it. And I like that statement. It's true. We never get tired off it. There's nothing more glorious. First Timothy 3.1, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires an excellent, noble, good thing. You never get tired off it, but you can get tired in it. And days like this are encouraging. Uh, to be in the company of others who are in the trenches on the front line, uh, just to, you know, um, get our, uh, our ordination certificates re-signed uh, with new enthusiasm and commitment, and so I want to give a, a shout out, because the ministry is not easy. The passage we're going to look at this, morning, this afternoon is in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 16, or 13, but in the verses before, Paul draws three pictures of the pastor. He draws from the laborious world of the farmer, the hardworking farmer. He draws from the uh, dangerous world of the soldier, as the minister is called to endure as a good soldier. He draws from the strenuous world of athletes and athletics. Ministry's hard. It's strenuous, dangerous, laborious, but it is glorious. And I want to encourage you to that end. I want to encourage you to stay by the stuff. Uh, some, some years ago, I was sitting across the table from a pastor who had gone through some tough times, and he told me the story. It got so bad that it affected him in terms of his health and his stress uh, that uh, he ended up during that season in the church where there was discouragement and division, he had a perforated colon, and the doctors put it down to the stress he was under, and, and uh, they removed 13 inches of his colon. But then in a humorous moment, he leaned across the table and he said, Philip, do you realize it takes guts to be a pastor? <laughs> Thirteen inches of guts. And he's right, it takes guts. And I want to encourage you to um, continue to be resolved. That's my message this morning. So take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy 2. While you're doing that, I hope that... Uh, You'll accept this little gift from us. You'll find it in your, your bag. Just a while ago, we preached through the book of Jonah. It was life-changing for our church and our ministry. Jonah, man on the run. We've given you a sample of two of the messages there. And hopefully, if you enjoy them, you can go to our radio website, ktt.org, or our church website, kindredchurch.org, and get the whole set and listen to it. Hopefully, it will feed your thinking as you try to feed uh, your congregation. But this morning, resolve to continue. Let's uh, read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. I'm reading from the New King James translation of Holy Scripture. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the Word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with Him, we shall live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, he will also deny us. 
If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. He cannot deny himself. God's word, may it be attended to by the power of the Holy Spirit, and may we be given grace to hear. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for this lunch together, this time to enjoy holy company and holy conversation. We pray that it would inspire us and encourage us. We pray that it would um, act as spiritual smelling salts to help us fight one more round. Lord, as we uh, come before you this morning, having had our bellies filled, we are very much aware man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so may we feed on your word, and may your word feed us for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a great story comes out of um, the Irish Rebellion of 1916. It centered on a man called Damon, Eamon de Valera, who will ultimately become the first prime minister of a free Ireland. Uh, he was uh, a rabble. In fact, the story is told that around 1916, when the rebellion's beginning to get going, he's in a little town in Ireland called Innes. He's in the middle of that town, and he's preaching sedition against the British. And the British are there, and so they arrest him on the spot. They throw him into jail for a few months, trying to cool this political hothead down. According to the story I read, when he is released, he goes back to Innes. He goes back to the very spot he was arrested from. The crowd gathers, and here's how he begins his talk. He says this, as I was saying before I was interrupted. I love the story. I mean, if, there's a man on mission, amen? There's a man on message, as I was saying before I was interrupted. I want to remind you this morning that the ability to plod and persevere in a definite direction is without doubt one of the keys to success in life, business, marriage, ministry, resoluteness, fixedness, grit, determination, perseverance, focus, endurance. These are winning words. These are words that belong to the vocabulary of a spiritual champion. You don't need me to tell you, do you, that life is hard, that ministry is tough, that success doesn't jump up onto your lap? No, it requires plodding, persevering. Success only surrenders to our enduring endeavor. We need gritty, gutsy grace. Paul says, in his letter to the Galatians, don't be weary in well-doing. The writer to the Hebrews says, you have need of endurance. Paul says to his young protege and the faith here to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Hupomeno, to remain under, to stay by the stuff, to endure, to persevere. Listen, perseverance is the answer when there is no answer. I don't know if you feel at the minute you're just trudging through uh, the mud 
or you're up against a dead end in the ministry, or things are slow. Perseverance is the answer when there is no answer. It's not all peaches and cream in the ministry. Not everybody gets saved every Sunday. Not every ministry initiative is a success. God's called us to an enduring ministry, one that perseveres. I, I like the words of Gary Enrig, who's speaking of the larger culture, yet speaks to our issues, says this, we live in a society that perpetually takes what it believes to be the easiest way. Faced with unwanted pregnancy, we kill the unborn. Faced with marital challenges, we terminate the marriage. Confronted with a ministry that costs more than we thought, we resign. Meeting a situation that goes against our preferences, we change churches. Feeling a need that we are sure must be met, we violate God's standards. Overwhelmed by a temptation that we cannot avoid, we give in. True godliness does the opposite. It has staying power. And I want to encourage you to that end because here in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, Paul gives Timothy reasons to resolve, to continue, to preach the Word, fulfill the ministry, do the work of evangelist, and do it all with joy. That's challenging. Timothy needed to hear this for several reasons. Number one, his own temperament. He was given to a spirit of fear. Aren't we told that in chapter 1, verse 7? He just temperamentally, he was like fine china. He was breakable. Wasn't as strong as Paul in his constitution and in his temperament. He needed to be reminded to stick it out sometimes. It would have been easy for him any given Monday morning to write a letter of resignation. Secondly, He's about to lose one of the pillars in his life because Paul is about to depart. The time of his departure is at hand. He's run the race. He's kept the faith. He's fought the fight. And that's why he has to say emphatically in the Greek, but you, Timothy, fulfill the ministry and do the work of an evangelist. And then you can put into the mix the idea that um, there was corruption and apostasy in the church. We read in 2 Timothy 2, 1 verse 15 that all in Asia had forsaken Paul. There were false teachers in the church whose heresy was spreading, to use Paul's words, as a cancer in the body. There was unfaithfulness in the pulpit. There was a, a lack of support now with Paul's departure. There was his own timidity. And if you want to put something on top of all of that, what about the culture? Totally antagonistic to the gospel. Because in chapter 3, we're told perilous times will come. Violent times will come. Difficult times will come in the last days, Timothy. Men will be lovers of self and pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will be disobedient to parents. They will despise the good that's the backdrop of Paul's ministry. In the foreground, you've got his own timidity. You've got the loss of Paul as his mentor. You've got compromise in the church. And to the background, you've got a culture that's totally antagonistic to the gospel. Sounds like you need some 
encouragement to continue to resolve, to continue. And so I want to look at this passage because there are four reasons to continue. And they're not hollow. Paul's already made an appeal to Timothy on the basis of his ordination vows, on the basis of his godly upbringing by his mother and grandmother, by the apostles' own example, by the faithfulness of Onesiphorus. And now he gives them four good reasons, four motivations to keep on keeping on. And that's for me and that's for you this afternoon. And I'm going to give you the outline ahead of time. There's the empowering reality of the resurrection, the unstoppable power of the gospel, the glorious work of evangelism, and the promise of eternal reward. Now that'll get you up in the morning, or it should. Okay? So here's the deal. In fact, if you want an outline... Here's a glorious win, the resurrection, a glorious word that's unstoppable, a glorious work, evangelism, a glorious welcome, eternal reward. So let's unpack that. Number one, a glorious win. Look at verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. You and I, here's motivation number one. Here's Reason to resolve to continue, number one, Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. The right hand of God is filled. Notice the word remember. In the Greek, it's in the imperative uh, mood. It's a command. It's in the present tense. It's continual action. It's in the passive voice. It's something you've got to do. Point. Every day of your ministry, Timothy, every day of your ministry, every morning, afternoon, and evening of that day of your ministry, remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the key to sustaining ministry. That's on you, active voice. You have got to resurrect the resurrection in your theology, in your thinking, and it ought to be practical and make a practical impact in your life each and every day. I like what Tony Merida says in his commentary in 2 Timothy, when your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty. Amen? It's a good word. When, when, when your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty. Don't forget the unforgettable. But here's the point. The fact that Tim Paul had to say to Timothy, remember, seems to hint at the fact that it's possible to forget the unforgettable. It's possible for the doctrine of the physical bodily resurrection and victory over death to remain in our doctrinal statement and yet not affect how we feel, what we do, and how we preach. And that ought not to be. But it is possible to forget the unforgettable. The human mind is notoriously fickle. Mental lapses are dangerous. In fact, what about an example of this? I'll give you Psalm 106, verses 19 to 21. Write it down. I'll read it for you. Here's what we read. Speaking of Israel in the wilderness, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works 
in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. We have a Columbo moment here. <laughs> wow. Are you telling me they forgot the Red Sea and the ten plagues? Yeah, that's what the Bible's telling us. Just like evangelical ministers on a Monday getting down into a funk, forgetting that the death has been conquered, the grave is empty, he ever lives to make intercession for us, he has sent the Holy Spirit, we have the great and exceeding promises of God. But we forget that. And Paul says to his young friend, don't do that. We have a glorious win. And you would understand why this would be so central. The resurrection is so central. It's of a critical nature. It's the supreme doctrine of, of Christianity. It's the fundamental doctrine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's of first importance. It's the capstone on the gospel narrative, and it's the cornerstone of our faith. I was at the Shepherds Conference with Dr. MacArthur a couple of years ago. H.B. Charles had come in from Atlanta, preached a wonderful message on the ascension of Jesus Christ, and Dr. Charles said this about the resurrection. I wrote it down, and I'm stealing it from him, but I'm giving him credit. He said this. He said this, gentlemen, do you realize that Christianity is the only religion in the world where its adherents go to the grave of its, of its founder to make sure he's not there? Because if he's there, then we're still in our sin. Our preaching's a load of drivel. Our suffering's a waste of time. I mean, listen to his arguments of Christ being not risen. But he is. He has. And we need to actively remember that fact and its implications in our lives. Here's the point. Gordon Fee notes this in his commentary in 2 Timothy, that Paul calling Timothy to remember Jesus raised from the dead is to be a source of strength and solace. This is more than a theological argument for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. This is speaking to a pastor in the trenches who's timid in spirit, who's about to lose his mentor, who's ministering against the backdrop of an antagonistic culture, who's dealing with compromise in the church, who, whose resolve could give way any day. And he's told, hey, here's what you need to do. Remember that when your tank is empty, the tomb is empty. That's a present experience. So we tend to think of the resurrection either as a past event or future expectation, and it's both. It's a past event. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and on the third day, He rose again according to the Scriptures. Historic fact. That's a past event. Future expectation, because He lives, we shall live also. There's coming a day, it's not now, coming a day when we'll look at the grave and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? That day is still to come. Death is still swallowing us up. But right now, we need to understand that the resurrection can be a present experience. A present experience. Is that what Paul talks about in Philippians 3.10? That I might know the power of his resurrection. You see, Jesus' ministry ended with a resurrection. But his ministry in us begins with a resurrection. We were dead in our sin. He made us alive. What a miracle. 
It's one thing physical resurrection is a miracle in itself. Spiritual resurrection. One of the greatest miracles is the new birth. And we've been raised with Christ. We've been made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the power that raised him from the dead, according to Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, is at work in us. Is at work in us. Again, not to minimize the hurt, the trouble, the challenges, but my, that, that ought to put a smile back on our face, put a bit of steel back into our backbone, it put a spring into our step. The power that raised him from the dead is at work in us. Paul calls it the glorious power. Same power that caused everything to come out of nothing. Same power that caused the sun to stand still in Joshua's day. The same power that fed the Israelites in the wilderness. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Enough of the belly aching. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we're to remember a glorious win. Can I illustrate this and move on? I, recently, my daughter, Laura, our middle daughter, got invited to go out with one of the deacons in her church. He had just bought himself a new shiny sports car. It was a Z06 Corvette. Just, this thing's a monster. You know, uh, 650 horsepower. Not the 60 and under three seconds. Top speed of 200 miles an hour. And Laura asked him, could she go out with him? And so he came and collected her and they headed off down to Newport Beach. And then later they came back and uh, uh, Stan was telling me a, a kind of funny side. He said, you know, on the way back, I pulled over and said, Laurie, do you want to drive it? She says, I'd love to. So she gets into the driver's seat, realizes now she has, she's got in her hands a $100,000 sports car, and her dad doesn't have the money to fix it should she ride it off. But, but anyway, she's driving it home, and she's kind of just sp- put, sputtering along at, I think he said, 25 miles an hour. You know, there, you could hear the rumble, but hey, 25's enough. And Stan says to her, Laura, punch it. So she punches it all the way to 40 miles an hour. And in the middle of the experience, she turns to him and goes, wow. Now, for her, it probably was a wow. But for petrol heads, that is a wow unworthy of a Z06. You don't go wow at 40 miles an hour when you've got 650 horsepower and 200 miles an hour at your disposal. But is that not kind of where we're at in the church? We're going, wow, and yet so far short of what's available to us. I often quote it, read, Adrian Rogers was right. If Christians realized they were inhabited, they would be less inhibited. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So we can resolve to continue because the power of God is available to us. We can resurrect our hopes. We can resurrect our experiences, our expectations. We can resurrect the dying church. We can resurrect the dying community through the power of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's resolve to continue in the light of a glorious wind. Secondly, in the light of a glorious word. 
Got to keep moving here. An unstoppable gospel. Look at what Paul says next. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, verse 9, for which I suffered trouble. Speaking of the gospel in verse 8. As an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Love that. Here's, here's another reason to steal the resolve of Timothy. You know what? The messenger may be imprisoned, but the message is not. You can't imprison the word. You can't chain the word. You can't lock it up and throw away the key. Despite attempts to thwart the gospel, the ministry of the Word of God is at work triumphantly in the world. And we've got to believe that today. We've got to, we've got to regain our confidence in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Now, Paul's suffering indignity. He's wearing chains. He's being treated as an evildoer. In fact, this Greek word is used of the thief on the cross in Luke 23, the evildoer. This was a word used as a, a burglars, murderers, traitors, and the like. And Paul's being treated like that. It's his second imprisonment. It's harsher and harder than his first. But while he is chained, while his movement is restricted, while there are limitations put on his freedoms, the Word of God knows no boundaries. It's unfettered. You can't shut it up. You can shut the messenger up, but you can't shut the message up. In fact, he tells us in chapter 4, did you notice, verse 17, that through his imprisonment, that he has been given an ability to preach the word and the message of the gospel more fully? And I would suggest to you that what's going on here during Paul's second imprisonment is exactly what went on during Paul's first imprisonment. Because during his first imprisonment, read about it towards the end of the book of Acts. He'll give us a summary in chapter 28. He says, you know, I'm under house arrest here, but I want to tell you this. I'm teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, no one forbidding me. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm no Greek scholar, but, uh, but I, I know this, that the Greek manuscript of Acts finishes with an adverb. The last word in Acts is an adverb, which is unusual grammatically, but the point isn't about grammar, it's about theology. Acts finishes with the word unforbidden. Think about it. Unforbidden. Or unhindered is, the, is how it's also translated. The church is unhindered. Well, hold on a minute. Don't you see persecution in the book of Acts? Yeah, you do, but it's unhindered. You see little churches and small congregations struggling, emerging? Yeah, but unhindered. Because you can't put a fetter on the gospel of Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And the church needs to embrace that. That's why when Paul writes in First Philippians, he says, you want to know how I'm doing? These things have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. Philippians 1, 12 to 18, the gospel is spreading, even to Caesar's household. Some in the palace guard are getting saved, unhindered. There's a lot of books being written today about church growth, some of them helpful, some of them awful. But I, if I was to write one, I'd, I'd kind of just try and parrot the book of Acts. I know there's an emphasis on the part of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. I don't deny that. But, but Luke 
gives us summary statements of how the church grew. Go looking for them. You'll find them in Acts 6, Acts 9, Acts 12, and Acts 28. And they're all to do with the preaching of the Word. Want to grow a church? Learn how to preach. Preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. Preach the text accurately and live it in your own life and God will do something with you. Because we read, and the Word of God grew, and the disciples multiplied. And the Word of God grew, and the disciples multiplied. And the book ends with Paul preaching and teaching the kingdom unhindered. We read, and the Word of God grew, and the disciples multiplied. And the Word of God grew, and the disciples multiplied. And the book ends with Paul preaching and teaching the kingdom unhindered. Isn't that why Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, in being asked about the success of the Reformation, answered this, I did nothing. Stop talking about Martin Luther, John Calvin's wingly. We had a hand, but let me tell you the secret. I did nothing. The Word did it all. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer, if you're a Baptist, forget about that phrase. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with Philip, the Word weakened all who opposed. It's great. I hope that fires you up to get into your study. Wrestle with the text. Come up with something that's true to God's Word, not of your imagination. Then go up and preach it in the power of the Holy Spirit to a congregation that need to hear the bread of life. And God will do something. In fact, as I thought about that, I, sh- I-, I should move on, but I'll, I'll run down this quickly. I-, I even went off a little and tried to remind myself of a few things. You know, this idea, the Word of God is not bound. I, I just wrote down five things one night in a, a hotel room getting ready for a-, 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 a situation not unlike this. The Word of God is not bound by time or distance. People have been saved by a sermon long after hearing it. Well, I need to know that. I didn't see anybody come forward on Sunday. But that doesn't mean it was a failure. Because the Word's not bound to a time, to a moment. And the Word of God will return, will not return void. If I faithfully preach it, my people heard it. The Spirit of God will do something with it. Either tomorrow, the day after that, next year, ten years from now. Not, not bound by time or distance. Remember that. Number two, the Word of God is not bound by, by, by the will of man. There's an irresistibility to the gospel and the call of God. John 1, 12, 13 tells us we're, we're, not, we're not, you know, brought to Christ by the will of man, but by the will of God. The Word of God is not bound by hardened hearts and closed minds. God will find a way to get His Word through the resistance. In fact, Spurgeon likes to take you to Second Chronicles 18.33 to remind you that God will find a way. Remember that story about the arrow going into the shoulder blades of the king, the only part of the armor that was exposed? The Word of God is not bound by um, government censorship or political correctness. The power of God's Word has never been dependent upon man's protection. I'm thankful for religious liberty. I'm going to fight for it. But if it's eroded, should we lose it? The power of God's Word has never been dependent 
upon any amendment or any law written by man. It's not bound by anybody. Here's another thought, and we'll move on. The Word of God is not bound by my weakness or ineptitude in preaching it. I'm glad to know that. And many of us have got up in the Monday morning and realized we just, you know, dropped a goose egg. It's terrible. Should have been better. But you need to remind yourself the Word of God is not bound by your weakness or ineptitude. I'm not, I'm not using that to encourage sloppy preaching. But I need to remind myself that one of the greatest preachers outside of the New Testament, Spurgeon, was brought to Christ by an inept preacher. You know his story, going to one church but had to go to another because of a snowstorm, drops in a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher can't even get there, so one of the lay guys gets up and can hardly string several sentences together in the king's English. It's broken. It's terrible. He runs out of material in about seven minutes, realizes there's a young man sitting at the back he's never seen before, points a finger and says, young man, look to Jesus and be saved all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon gets saved that night. Gets baptized, joins a Baptist church. Tells his mother, who was a Congregationalist, said, you know what, son, I prayed you'd get saved. I never prayed that you'd become a Baptist, to which Spurgeon replies... To which Spurgeon replies, Mother, God has answered your prayers exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. It's a true story. Hey, think about it. And I think if my memory serves me right, Spurgeon took his own story and said, God can cook in small pots as well as big pots. And what he meant by that was he pastored one of the first maggot churches ever in church history, but he got saved in a little church of about a half a dozen, about two dozen people with an inept preacher. Small pots and big pots. You can't restrict the Word of God. Let's move on. A glorious work. We'll wrap these two up a little bit quicker. A glorious work. Keep moving through the text. Verse 10, therefore, <laughs> remembering that Jesus is raised from the dead, remembering the power of the Word of God. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's another motivation. Timothy, glorious win, the resurrection. Timothy, a glorious word, the gospel. Timothy, a glorious work, bringing the gospel of the resurrected Christ to people in darkness and in death. That's a glorious work and seeing God bring them to His Son. Nothing more glorious. That doesn't come easily. Don't, don't read books that make the ministry sign easy, because it's not. It's costly. Paul says, I've, I've, I've suffered the loss of all things for Christ. Second Corinthians 11, shipwreck, nakedness, Peril of robbers. He's lost friends, gained enemies, imperiled his life, suffered imprisonments, targeted by Satan, faced his worst fears. But here's what he says it's worth it. It's worth it that the elect get saved and enjoy eternal glory. I'll take the buffeting, I'll endure the fights. Let me try and keep this simple. Here's what Paul is saying. The elect 
I know that's a word that scares people. It's a biblical word. I believe in the doctrine of election. I, for me, it's simple. As Spurgeon said, I, I'd rather God choose me before I was born because he wouldn't choose me after I was born. <laughs> so here, here's who the elect are. Let me just keep it simple. Let's try and stay away from anything that would just distract us at this moment. I think the text is clear. You can agree with me here. The elect are those whom God has chosen who have not yet come to faith. That's what Paul seems to be saying, okay? There's there's the elect, those whom God has chosen who have not yet come to faith, who will come to faith. How will they come to faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They need a preacher to preach the gospel to them. But here's the thing, preachers. You'll never be able to, you'll have to preach that gospel in the face of a howling wind. The culture, your own fears, weakness in the church, carnality in the congregation, but you got to step up to the plate for the sake of the elect and preach the gospel. It might come with suffering, might come with sickness, might come with you being sent away with your bags packed. But you're going to endure that, you're going to do that, you're going to embrace that for the sake of the elect that they might obtain salvation. I know for some people the doctrine of election cuts the nerve of evangelism, and it shouldn't. For me, it fires me up to preach. It gives me a confidence that God's going to save His people. And 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 you know what? Um, I I got to be faithful. I got to be, you know, compelling in my presentation. I got to be filled with the Spirit. I got to be available for what God wants to do through me. But ultimately, it's His job to save. And, and that's an encouragement. Paul's in Corinth. He's, he's down on his knees. He's discouraged. He's about to move on to f- more fruitful fields. And what does God say? Paul, stay here because I have many people in this city. They're staggering out of the pub tonight, half drunk. They're involved in illicit relationships. <laughs> They're breaking every commandment I've ever written. Um... I have many people in this city, and I just need you to be faithful so that they might obtain salvation. Can you keep the lights on? Can you keep the doors open? Can you keep preaching the word in the face of little response? Because the elect will be saved, and the church will be built, and God will do His work. You've been listening to highlights of the 25th Annual Pastors Appreciation Luncheon held at the Fremont Marriott Hotel with special keynote speaker Philip DeCourcy, speaker on Know the Truth, heard each Monday through Friday at 12.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. If you'd like to get more information about the pulpit ministry of Philip DeCourcy, you can certainly log on to kfax.com and look for more information under our program guide for Know the Truth, heard Monday through Friday at 12.30 p.m. with a reprise broadcast each weekday morning at 4.30 a.m. Also, we invite you to share this message. If you'd like to encourage another pastor, simply point them toward the KFAX podcast page. Tonight's program will be available about 7.15. Simply go to kfax.com and look under Lifeline Podcast with today's date. We'll take a brief time out. Back with more, hour number two ahead, here on the Thursday, October 11th edition of Lifeline. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.